Well, the, uh, the text on which our teaching is based this morning comes from John 14, six verses. I'm going to read it for us. Do not, Jesus, Jesus speaking, do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I'm going. Lord, Thomas said, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? And Jesus told him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is God's word. So this, this week we're starting, or last week we started another series, a new series as we do in the beginning of the year where we're looking at one of the biographies about Jesus in the Bible, the Gospel of John. And we're looking specifically at this, this section called the Last Supper where Jesus meets with his disciples right before he dies in this long block of teaching and prayer. And so we're going to be looking uh, at that up until Easter. And today we come to one of the most iconic sayings of Jesus. Uh, last week we looked at the, the very famous foot washing And then today we have this unbelievably iconic statement where Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It's so famous and important that we're actually going to spend two weeks looking at it. So this week we're going to kind of, uh, we're going to look at it again next week and really dig into the passage. But this week I want to start by just inviting us to notice how this passage came about, how the saying of Jesus came about. Why did Jesus say these words? And we'll notice if we just look one sentence ahead that it came because of a question. A question from one of Jesus' disciples named Thomas. He says, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Now, if you know anything about Thomas, it's probably the story later on in uh, the ministry of Jesus. After Jesus has risen, the disciples come, and they come find Thomas, and they're like, dude, you know how Jesus died? He's alive again. And Thomas says to them, you know, unless I can touch him, unless I can put my hands into the the nail holes in his hand, or, yeah, my fingers into the nail holes of his hands, I'm not going to believe that he's actually been risen. And that's where he gets the name Doubting Thomas from, which I think is slightly unfair. Um, you know, like if, if we went to a funeral last week and I came in, I was like, guys, like, you know that guy that we saw last week at the funeral that's dead? He's alive. And you said to me, like, look, I'm going to have to see it for myself. If you said that, I wouldn't call you, you know, Doubting, doubting Ken, for example. I'd call you Reasonable Ken. It's very reasonable, uh, you know. It's like people who are like, yo, do you know that the Canucks might win the Stanley Cup this year? I'm like, I will believe it when I see it. That's not doubt. That's just reasonable. Okay? Because they have never won the Cup. Like, never. Like, like never not once in their history have won the Cup. So it's just reasonable that we think that it might not happen. Um, But the point is to say, you you hear Thomas ask this question, and you might think, oh, like, doubting Thomas, right? Of course, this guy's just always questioning everything. But that's not how it's portrayed in this section of Scripture. In fact, this section of the the Last Supper is just littered with questions. Let me just show you a few of them. Chapter 13, verse 6, Peter says, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? And then John says, Lord, who's going to betray you? Peter again, Lord, where are you going? And then there's Thomas's question right here. And then it says, Judas, not Iscariot, which is also how I would introduce myself if I was named I'm like, hey, whoa, whoa, not Iscariot. Uh, but he says, he has a question in verse 14, or chapter 14, verse 22. So it's super easy for us to miss because we, when we do the readings here, we do it in, in small chunks, generally speaking. But uh, if you're reading through the section again, you'll just see question after question after question after question. They play a really prominent role in this section of Jesus' teaching. And they serve, very importantly, as invitations 
Jesus will generally do or say something crazy, and then the disciples will ask a question, and it's an invitation for Jesus to clarify who he is. These questions. They move the narrative forward. And so they move the narrative forward, and they also offer an opportunity for Jesus to do what he's, he's doing in this whole section, which is to show who he is, what he's come to do, what the disciples are to remember, and who they're supposed to do. The questions play a huge role in all four of those things, which is exactly what this whole section is about. So today, I, I want to take the lead of this passage and just look at these questions a little bit. What do they mean for us as we ask questions? How do they lead and guide us to ask questions, both personally and then also as a community as we follow Jesus. So let's start with the importance of questions in our personal relationship with Jesus. What does this teach us about the questions that we might ask? And here I want to remind us of what we talked about last week. Last week, again, we looked at Jesus uh, washing the feet of the disciples, and I introduced you to this idea, um, Hofstad's Six Cultural Dimensions. So there's this, this guy named uh, Geert Hofstad, and he, I just wanted to say his name again, so great, Geert. Um, I was really hoping the Chans would name their child Geert, but it's a girl, so I, I can understand why not. But the idea here is that there's different cultures have different uh, things that they value. And so there's low power distance and high power distance. And so a high power distance culture, which is the setting of Jesus' ministry, is a, is a culture where there's a lots of separation and distance between people. So people who are more powerful, they will be way above those who are less powerful. So for example, a rabbi would be above a disciple who was above a slave. And this, this distance would be emphasized within their culture, the stratification. And symbolic acts, then, in a culture like this, high-power distance culture, are they're really important. So something like foot washing is showing where you are on the, uh, on the social stratification, on the power sphere. And so something like washing feet, which is a very low and menial job, would be done by, generally speaking, Gentile slaves in Jewish house, households, by female slaves, not male, and by one of the lowliest slaves in that space. Now, every once in a while in their culture, a disciple would wash the rabbi's feet, which was shown as to be as this huge display of love. But a, a rabbi would never wash a disciple's feet. A, a disciple would never wash a slave's feet. Going in that direction, it's totally outside of the realm of possibility. So when Jesus, in, the, in, in John 13, when he washes the disciples' feet, it's absolutely shocking. That's why Peter has this question, you're not going to wash my feet. Like, you'll never wash my feet. That, and it's very, in the Greek, that last sentence is very, very uh, strong. You'll never in all of time wash my feet. That's not going to happen. And so Peter's assumptions about his culture are the same ones that we often have, which are this. So for him, in his culture, he's a good Jewish boy, Peter. And so he expects Jesus to be a good Jewish rabbi, which means that he will do all the things that you would think that a, a person in that culture would do. Can you go to the next slide? So he's going to move, basically, he would move in the direction of Peter's worldview. He would move towards the middle. So maybe Peter would think, you know, I'm not that good in my worldview, but Jesus, as a good rabbi, will move closer to what my people expect, to what I've grown up expecting. But instead, Jesus is, is doing exactly the opposite, which is he's going in the other direction. That he's messing, instead of going inwards to, to Peter's categories, he's messing with Peter's categories and his assumptions about the world. And so Peter's question is just noticing, or, or it's a signal of this, um, of this place right here, this dynamic right here. 
that he's pushed to the edge of what he can possibly believe. He's saying to Jesus, what you're doing by washing the feet is just messing with all everything I've ever heard. All my mental categories, what I know about honoring people, what my society has told me, and, and as we saw last week, even how our society is set up. You're messing with everything that I know. So Peter's just vocalizing that he's at the edge of his limits by his question. And here's what I want you to notice. It's not Peter's doubts that move him to question Jesus. It's not his rebellion. It's not that he's being like a bad boy or a bad disciple in all of this. It's Jesus' actions that move him to question. Jesus' actions move him to question. And the second thing is that when then Peter does question Jesus, Jesus meets him at this very point where he's saying, I'm coming to the very edge of what I can understand, what I can conceive, what I can believe. Jesus meets him right at that point. And he says two things to him. First of all, he says this. You don't understand what I'm doing now when I'm washing your feet, but you will. At some point, you will. Because washing your feet messes with your categories, with the cultural categories of what you think is right and wrong. But it's actually just a setup. It's a setup for a much bigger moment that's going to come where I'm going to mess with your categories way more than you could possibly imagine. It's not going to be a rabbi washing the feet of a disciple. It's going to be something much crazier. It's going to be a God who comes and gives his life for his people. A Messiah who is willing to die. So it's much more like this dynamic. If you want to go to the next slide, Caleb. Where God is going to break through and he's going to actually push the very foundations of what Peter thinks is possible. And then Jesus says, when you meet me again, after I've been risen from the dead, that's the moment where your whole paradigm of what the world looks like should break down. And you want to be open to asking every kind of question that anything could be open. Because God will come, Jesus will come at that moment of resurrection, a savior who has died for his people and has now been raised. And he'll say, I am your Lord and teacher. I am the Messiah. But I'm redefining reality for you. You know, gods don't die for their people in their culture. Rabbis don't wash feet. Dead men don't normally live. Yet here I am, the risen Jesus. And so the question becomes, will you be a a person who leaves the safety of everything that you've known? what you've heard your whole entire life, and will you be, come with a person, be, be the kind of person who comes with me into a new world where there is possibly a God who would serve his people, who would die for them, and who would rise? And would you take that pattern onto your life? Would you be a person who then would lose your life to let go of everything you know to come into a new life, to be resurrected, to live in the new family of God, to be part of his kingdom? It's all of this language that Jesus uses. And the interaction with Thomas... Is, well, let me just ask questions. Is this, how, how's this, does this make any sense, the, the graphics? Last, time, last week I tried to use the whiteboard, and it was an unmitigated disaster. So <laughs> I just decided to go back to this, um, but I, I, hope it, I hope it's making sense. Let's, try, let's go for another example, because the interaction with Thomas is exactly the same. Listen to what Jesus says to him. He says, In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would, have told you that I, would I have told you that I'm going to prepare a place for you? If I go away and prepare a place for you, I'll come again and take you to myself, so that where I am, you may also be. You know the way to where I'm going. This, this statement here is b- kind of bizarre, and again, we'll look at it in more depth next week. But, Peter, or, but Thomas says exactly what we should say, like, where are you going? Like, I don't understand. If we just want to understand how weird Jesus' statement is, just add, like, McDonald's in there. Be like, you know, what is the way to the McDonald's? I don't know the way. And then Jesus says, I'm the way to the McDonald's. Just think, okay? 
that it's, it's a bizarre answer to this statement. And so Thomas is saying, where are you going? I don't understand what's happening. Jesus is pushing on his categories. He's right at this moment, the edge of what he can understand, the edge of what he can comprehend. And so he asks a question. How can we know the way? How could we possibly know where we're going? For Thomas, the only way that the Messiah could have victory was not through exile, which is what Jesus is describing in this passage. He says, I'm going to go away. I'm going to have to go away for a while. And Thomas is like, no, no, no. You're going to ascend. You're going to take leadership. That's all I know. That's all I could possibly understand. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not what I'm going to do. I'm going to leave. And just previous to this, he says, I'm going to die. That's what's going to happen. And and notice again, it's not Thomas's lack of faith that makes him ask this question. It's Jesus' actions and Jesus' words. Thomas is paying attention to what Jesus said. That's why he starts to ask some question. And in fact, I might say it's, it's his faith that he that he perks up and is willing to say something. And then Jesus meets him at this moment where he's at the limits of what he can understand and possibly believe with this iconic statement: "I am the way, the truth, and the life." He's saying, I'm pulling you into a whole different way of looking at the world. Will you come with me? It's going to mess with all of your categories. And we'll talk more about that statement next week. But what I want us to see this week is that Thomas's question, it's his question that opens up this very famous disclosure of Jesus about who he truly is. And his answer is, is pulling Thomas, it's pulling Peter into, into a new world. And he's, he's saying to them, like, like, leave the shire. And come with me into this adventure of this new world. And ultimately, this is the invitation of Christianity. You know, it's not to just become slightly better people, to stop being so bad and be a little bit better. You know, it's not to vote conservative. It's not to get married, have 2.5 kids, and move out to the valley, no matter what you've heard. This is the invitation of Jesus right here, is what's going on in this passage. It's to come with him, to be with him, and to have your categories pulled apart by the risen Jesus and be invited into a new life, to resurrection life, to come with our questions when we come to those moments where we are maxed out, where Jesus has pushed us to our limits, ask questions that Jesus might actually reveal himself to us and invite us into the new life. And I mention this and I emphasize this because I think that some, if not many of us, are in a similar place to this. Where we've started with maybe with the assumption that Jesus would, you know, just reinforce all the categories that we had about our lives. That he would move us towards the center of what we believed. So we're going along with Jesus and you're following him. And as you do so, you surprisingly are led not in towards the middle to reinforce the things that you already believe, but to actually be pushed the opposite direction. Where you're, you're maxed out, where you're coming to the edge of what can be possible. And maybe it's your life experiences that got you there. Maybe you're following Jesus and you thought, oh, he would, he would give me this by the time I was 30. Or I would be this at this point in my life, uh, you know, in my career by the time I was 40. Whatever it is. And you're not there. Or, or maybe life just hasn't turned out how you thought. Or maybe you thought you would always be healthy if you follow Jesus and you're sick. You're not. You're dealing with mental health. You're dealing with physical health. Whatever it is. Or maybe you've just got questions from following Jesus. You're following him, but now you've got questions about be, living in this world, in this city in a rapidly changing, globalized world. You know, what do I do about my sexuality? What do I do about housing? What do we do about all these different things that are just big questions that rise up? And maybe for you, it's not even a question that you have that you've got from following Jesus. Maybe it's just a general sense of like discomfort. We can't put our fingers on what it is, but I just don't feel comfortable. I feel like uneasy 
in my relationship with Jesus? And for some of us, there might be guilt or fear then in asking a question when we get to this moment in time where Jesus pushes us to the edges because we think that that might lead us to just be leaving the faith. And I, I do want to be very clear. Like, we just looked at Genesis 3. It's the question from the snake that does cause the people to fail at the tree. So questions can lead us away from God. But this passage is also showing us that there's at least one more option. That questions exist because we can exist and can come up. They're a natural part of us actually following Jesus. And Jesus push, pushes, might be pushing us to the edge of what we're comfortable with. And, and be waiting for us, inviting us to ask these questions. Because he, he longs for us to become more than what we are. He longs to pull us into the resurrection life. Not to just push us to the edge of our questions, but to actually pull us into his world, into the resurrection life, into the new life with Jesus. If you want to go to the next slide, uh, Caleb. So this is one of the biggest differences between what we talk about here in being a bounded set church and being a centered set church. This may be new language to you, so let me try to explain it a little bit. A bounded set church is like this. It's interested in drawing a map for you. So imagine you're on the left-hand side here on on this circle, and and they want to draw a map for you and make sure that nothing on that map ever changes. So this is the map of the world. This is the circle of the world. And then these are the maps that we believe in. This is the way, the truth, and the life is these different things that we believe. And I want to say there's something to commend about this. There are things about the Christian faith that have not changed for 2,000 years. But here's what I found, and here's what I think happens for many of us. We, we inherit maps, and then we live our life in following Jesus. And it turns out the things that are in those maps, maybe our idea of faith, or our idea of God, or the world, or what we understand about ourselves and our identity, or the Bible and Jesus, those things start to, we get pushed to the edges of what's possible within those maps. And the maps that we've inherited, generally speaking, are good maps. They're fine. You know, oftentimes they're maps that we had when we were children, and they worked really well when we were children. But it turns out that they don't work so well for us as adults. You know, maybe we, we don't like these maps because they were, you know, written by or drawn by, you know, white men 500 years ago. And we're just not those people. Or maybe you inherited maps from your Asian immigrant parents. And they worked really well for them, but they don't work as well for you. And now as you're getting older, you're starting to ask questions about, that are pushing you towards the edge. Questions about the world that we inhabit and, and the questions about who we are. And the maps don't work for us. And so we're pushed right to the edge of our worldview. And we resist, I think, a lot of times taking that next step into Jesus' world and into Jesus' resurrection life. And there's lots of reasons why we might do that. We might feel bad. We might feel bad about letting go of the map, or we might feel bad about that we're bad Christians if we are willing to take the step into something new. We might feel like we're causing trouble for ourselves or for other people. And honestly, I think if we're really honest with ourselves, one of the reasons why we don't receive Jesus' invitation into resurrection life is because we're lazy. To draw a new map takes a lot of work. Or we're scared. Because we're entering into something completely new. What if God asks something completely unheard of from you in the resurrection life? What if he asks you to give up something that you don't want to give up? That's a scary place to be. And I don't know what your reasons are for for resisting moving into the resurrection life. All of us have our reasons. That might be a really good question to talk about in community groups. All I want to point out here today is that needing to draw a new map might not just be the result of being a doubting Thomas. 
And if that's the only category that we have, we're going to just continually feel bad about it. But this passage shows us that one of the reasons we might be pushed to the edge of what we believe is it might come from following Jesus. There might actually be an invitation from him there to meet us right at that border, to ask our questions. And he might be waiting there actually to draw us in to a deeper life. Now, before that, that's talking about asking questions personally. Before we talk about asking questions in community and how important that is for us, I do want to point out that Jesus does give an answer to this question. Because I think in, in our, and again, we're going to look at this passage uh, in more detail, but I think in our culture, um, it's very easy for us to be like continually asking and never answering, continually searching. But it, Jesus does give an answer to the, the question of, of Thomas. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. So when we ask questions, what are some characteristics of the answers that Jesus might give? So I just want to point out three here before we move on. First is this. When Jesus answers our questions, oftentimes it's very hard to make sense of. His answer to Thomas is in no way straightforward. And this is actually a characteristic of what happens in the Gospel of John. People will come to ask Jesus questions and he just gives them crazy answers. One time the disciples come to him and they're like, hey, you must be hungry. Like, would you like something to eat? And he's like, I got food to eat that you don't know anything about. <laughs> and they're like, did someone bring you food? And he's like, just look around. The fields are white for harvest. It's just a bizarre conversation. That's how the conversation ends. It's just bizarre. And this happens again and again and again in the Gospel of, of John. And and I visualize it like this. People are coming from their paradigm. They're asking their questions from their paradigm. But Jesus' answers are from the second paradigm. And so they just don't mesh with each other. He's inviting them into a whole new way of thinking. And so what that just means for us, that's often, I think, how Jesus answers questions. And here's something interesting that I found as a pastor. Some of us want Jesus to be ultra clear. And then we don't like the things he's ultra clear about. Last week, he was ultra clear. What should we do if we love him? serve. And you're like, well, not. Don't be clear about that. And then now we're like, oh, who are you, Jesus? He's like, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. Like, and you're like, well, I don't, what does that even mean? It's vague. And so I think sometimes we're, he's vague about the things we want him to be clear about and clear about the things that we want him to be vague about. And so sometimes I, I, I think what that just means for us is that the invitation is to actually just take a lot of time to think about it. What he's inviting us into is not simple answers because it's not a test. He wants to know you. And this is how relationships work. And so uh, one of the people that I, I listen to and really admire a lot and have learned so much from is a guy named Tim Mackey from The Bible Project. And he'll often say this when he hears something new. He'll say, you know what I really need to do with that? I need to just have a cup of tea and go for a long walk and think about it. And so many of Jesus' answers are just that invitation to just take some time and just soak in it, to let yourself think about what that could possibly even mean. Sometimes Jesus' answers are very, very hard to understand. The second thing is that the answers of Jesus have to be able to change us. That's the invitation. I so often think that what Jesus is going to answer is he's going to be for what I'm for and against what I'm against. He's going to believe what I already believe, and he's going to be, uh, you know, not believe what I don't believe. He's going to support the people I support, the Edmonton Oilers. He's going to be against the teams that I don't like, Toronto Maple Leafs, Vancouver Canucks, which is just good Christianity. Let's just be honest. <laughs> But this is what Jesus often does. He often comes. That's what I'm trying to show with those two pictures. He, he categorically changes what we're thinking. He's answering from another realm, and he's inviting us to change. 
And I think so often the questions that we're asking, if we're not, we just want an answer and we're not actually open to fundamentally even changing the question, which is what Jesus is usually about. Changing our assumptions about what's even possible. That's what Thomas is saying. What's the way? Where do I go? Where do I walk? And Jesus is like, I am the way. He's saying, change. Change how you even are asking the question. And that's so important. That's often characteristic of the answers that Jesus gives. And the third thing I'll say is this. That in Jesus' answers, there's always an invitation to the divine life. So it's hard to understand sometimes. Absolutely. It's going to take time. It's going to ask you to change. But the reason that Jesus is doing that is because he actually wants us to come into the divine life. To be part of his family. He wants us to leave the things that we have made our world up of and actually enter into a new world where he is king, where he is at work even though we can't see him. And all of these things will take time, and that's the invitation, that's the encouragement that we're invited into this divine life through Jesus' answers. So questioning. Questioning helps us personally, but here's the second part. Questioning also helps us in community. And there's so many ways that asking good and honest questions help us in community. When we ask good and honest questions within a community of people, that opens up space for other people to do the same. I'm always so grateful for the people who share at our lament night because oftentimes it's just questions. And they'll come and they'll say things that those of us sitting here who haven't maybe experienced the same thing would never say ourselves. But because they're saying it, they lead us into spaces where we can now ask questions. And we can minister to one another. And we can be ministered to by Jesus. So it's the same thing. Good questions open up space to be ministered to and to be in community. But it also, good questions also help us become a full community. Let's again go back to what we talked about last week. So Jesus, like I said, he's ministering in this high power distance culture, which means that if someone above you, your rabbi tells you to serve, you say, yes, sir, I will serve. And if your God tells you that you need to serve, you will bow down and you will say, absolutely, I will serve. That is a high power distance culture. Vancouver, of course, is not that kind of culture, right? If someone above you, your pastor, preaches a sermon that says you should serve, you're going to say, oh, this church used to be good. So legal. (laughs) So legalistic now. I think not, not good anymore. And if a God tells you that you need to serve, you'll say, like, I think that's your job, actually. I need to take my fifth spiritual inventory test, and then maybe I'll know where I should be serving. So we're low power distance people. We're on the opposite end of the spectrum, and there's pros and cons to both. And we're not going to just become high power distance people. That's not what's going to happen. But we still need to wrestle then with this command of Jesus, which says, here's my example. I served You need to serve as well. We still are called to wrestle this. So one of the best things that we can do as low power distance people is to be in community with people who are from a high power distance. From a culture that's a high power distance or from a time that's a high power distance culture. Some of us in here are from those cultures. So according to Hofstad, three cultures that are from high power distance. China, Chinese, Nigerian, Malaysian. We have people like that are from those places in our community. And we need you in our churches. We need you in our community because you will bring the gift of high power distance cultures to our community. Because you will just serve. You'll hear, oh, I'm supposed to serve? I'm going to serve. And then the rest of us are like, you know, just moping around. And you'll be like, why aren't you serving? <laughs> and, and it will push us, right? It will cause us to ask questions. You will question us. And then we will have to, in turn, hopefully question ourselves. Not in like a guilt-ridden way but in a blessing way, to call us out. Because you're bringing the gift of your culture. 
A multi-generational church will also do the same thing. Mitch and I talk about this often. It's one, I love this church so much, but one of the, the things I, I lament about it is we don't have a wide generational gap. Because if we did, we would notice, this is a broad brush statement, but older people are much better at just serving than those of us from a younger congregation. Like, you know, I, I dunk on the valley all the time. I already did it once in this sermon. It's a contractual obligation, actually. But here's my encouragement to you. Go to, go to Abbotsford. Go find some old Mennonite church and just find some people who there have been serving lunches to the homeless, and yes, they will call them the homeless, for 40 years. And just go ask them, like, why do you serve? And they'll say, well, when I started coming to this church, my friend Gertrude just told me that the women here, we make lunches. So I just started coming. And for the first 30 years, I hated it. (laughs) But in the last 10 years... It's so been okay. And I've made some friends. And uh, I can't, you know, squeeze pierogies as uh, I used to as a young lady because I've got arthritis in my fingers. But it's been a real blessing. And you will say to them, you'll just be like, you'll be like, you served for 30 years. Well, first of all, you served for 10 years and you liked it. You served for 30 years and you didn't like it. Like, why didn't you draw boundaries? Why didn't you find a place where your gifts were used? Like, Why didn't you, you know, take a spiritual inventory test and and go do something else? And you know what that person will say to you? Well, that's nice. (laughs) Me and Bernice are going to go make some more lunches for the homeless. And being in community, like, they sound like aliens. I don't know if you've ever spent time around old people, okay? But this is what it is, because they're challenging us from their higher power distance. They just said yes. And we're just, we're bizarre. It's, It's so bizarre for us, right? And I'm being slightly dramatic here. But honestly, if you have talked to older people who have just served, these, this is kind of how these conversations go. Because they have just, they've just said yes to that invitation that's so hard for us to. And again, we're not going to become high-power distance people. That's not, that's not the goal. Um, the goal is for us to be a community and to be, to be pushed by them in the places that are very hard for us to follow Jesus and the places that they just serve so faithfully and honorably. And to challenge our cultural expression of Christianity. Because here's the thing for us. You know what will happen to you? No matter where you come from, but for those of us who are from a low power distance culture, this is what will happen to us. At some point in our life, by the grace of God, he will push us to the edge of our paradigm. He will push us there. And the answer, the way that we get through, won't be by doing another spiritual inventory test. It won't be by reading another book. It won't be by listening to another sermon. It won't be by going on another wilderness retreat to find out what your inner child is saying. The only way to get through is going to be service. The only way to get through into the resurrection life in that moment of your life is going to be service. And it's not because Jesus needs you to serve, and it's not because our church needs to add another service. That's not why. It's because you will only be able to meet the God who serves through this path. God wants to meet you as this kind of God, a God who serves. And the only way to know that is not to learn about it or to listen to it, but actually put ourselves in a place where we're serving. And we will meet this risen Jesus who serves us, who has served us, and will come into the resurrection life. Meeting the Jesus who knelt, who stripped down and served us. The Jesus on the cross who was completely naked and ashamed and served us. And the only way to get there is by serving. And that takes us back, so that's for us low power distance people, and this is where it takes us back to this, the passage we were looking at today. Who's going to have an easier time questioning their leader? P- 
people from a low power distance culture or people from a high power distance culture? Well, if you're from a high power distance culture, you know the answer to that. We don't even look people in the eye that are uh, above us, right? Those of us from a low power distance culture, we have no problem questioning our leaders. Like most of us, we like, I hadn't heard of Gaza until three weeks ago, but last night I watched two videos about Israel-Palestine and I have, uh, I want to give Justin Trudeau a piece of my mind about his foreign policy. Like that's how we feel about our leaders. We know nothing about what's going on, but we feel like we should be able to talk to them. We have no problem challenging authority. Now, again, there's pros and cons to being part of a low power distance culture, but if you are part of a low power distance culture, ask your questions. Because it's easy for you, and that's great, and you'll be able to lead those of us who are from a high power distance culture to ask our questions too, to see the ways that we have culturally appropriated Christianity and come to a fuller understanding of what the body of Christ looks like. So if you're from a high power distance culture, the invitation is to come around the table with those of us who are from a low power distance culture and learn from us, just like we need to learn from you in service. Because by the grace of God, you will have moments in your life where you will reach your end, where following Jesus will pull you to the limits of who you are and what you know. And the only way to break through won't be by serving more. It won't be by doubling down. It won't be by giving more. It will be doing by doing what the disciples did in this passage, which is questioning. And it will feel weird for you. It might even feel wrong for you to question. But the goal and the hope here is not just that you need to question or that you need to become Canadian. The goal and the hope here and the promise of Scripture is that when we ask questions that Jesus might actually meet us there with an answer like he gave Thomas. I am the way, the truth, and the life. Come into the divine life. Come follow me. There's only one way through me. Come, come. We need each other. That's what this graphic is is to show. It's not to become, everybody needs to become one or the other, but that we actually need to learn from each other in order to follow Jesus. And here's where I finally get to describe our sermon graphic. Um, Some of you, I put it up last week, and some of you are like, what's happening with that picture? Um, Well, it's natural for us to look at everything through our personal and our cultural lenses. This is just normal. And so to find, we find and we surround ourselves with people who look like us and are just like us. If you want to go to the next slide. Maybe we're from the same social standing or the same life situation, the same financial situation. This is called, uh, in church land, the homogeneous unit principle. That we find people that look like us. You walk into a room and the first question is like, is there anyone here who's anything like me? If so, maybe I can find myself here. And that's kind of like what this painting represents. The beautiful uh, painting. But everyone looks the same. And it even makes Jesus into a picture of of someone who looks like us. And so the reaction that we have to things like this is that we often then try to make communities or pictures of Jesus and his disciples that look more like us. So maybe this one looks more like you. Um, This is a beautiful painting from South America. Maybe that's more what it looks like. Or maybe you you think of, of your community looking more like this. Go to the next one. This is a satire painting from China. Or maybe it's like this. I don't know what the picture that you paint in your mind looks like. All of us do this. It's from our culture. And each picture has its own beauty and its own way to help us rethink our picture of Jesus. But I think what Jesus is actually doing and inviting us into is something slightly different, which looks more like this. That he's gathering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation, from all over the world, 
from high power distance cultures and low power distance cultures, from communities all over the place, and inviting them around the table to be with him. That we all come with our different perspectives, our different perspectives on you know, power distance and many other things, but we come around the table with Jesus. And this was an unbelievably scandalous thing that happened in the early church. As uh, Paul says in Galatians, that male and female, slave and free, rich and poor, Jew and Gentile, would get around the table and they would serve one another. It was one of the biggest ways that they witnessed to their culture. And it's a picture of what heaven looks like. Like, not that picture. I hope it looks nothing like the thing that I've made. That's just a bad cut-and-paste job. But this idea is the picture of, of heaven. And I think this passage gives us just two ways that we might get a glimpse of that at our table here. And the first is that we are a community of people who ask questions. That we're honest about the places personally that we're pushed to the edge. That we're honest with ourselves and we're honest with one another and we see the invitation of Jesus there. And that we're open to learning from one another. To being challenged by each other. To asking questions and to learning together. So we ask questions, and the second thing is that we're invited to come to the table, but to put Jesus at the center. Otherwise, what we'll continually do is try to replace him with a cultural picture of what we think he is and who he thinks he is. That Jesus looks like me. You know, he questions authority all the time. He's just such a rebel. Or Jesus is just like me. He just completely obeys the Father, and he serves. We'll make Jesus into this picture of who we think he is, but that's not who he is. He sits at the center, and he redefines reality for us. That he has to be the one who helps us understand what the way, the truth, and the life is. And that's what we do every week when we come to this table together. We, We redefine the stories that we bring. We bring our cultures, we bring our baggage, we bring what's ever happened in our week, and we redefine ourselves by this. A God who would give his life, his body broken, his blood shed for us. And this becomes our story together. That we come together and we celebrate and we reorient ourselves to be family around the table with Jesus in witness to our city. Let's pray to close. God, thank you for the invitation uh, in this passage from the disciples to ask questions, to bring our questions, to bring our cultures to you. So as we respond now in worship, in giving, in prayer, in taking communion, we just ask that you would make yourself at the center of our communities. We, there's so many ways we decenter you. Um, but we ask you just to take your weighty space as we sing, as we give, as, as we just, all the things that we do. And I pray for those of us in this community who are asking questions right now. Maybe they are pushed to this edge. Um, would you make space for, uh, would you give them courage to ask those questions? And would we be the kind of a community who is open to hearing those questions? not being scared off by them, and by inviting you to be the answer. So we we ask all these things and we pray all of them together in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.